Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Chapel Messages podcast, a ministry of Emmaus Bible College. Each episode is taken from a chapel message given here at Emmaus. For more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. message with you to continue in our series in Ephesians 6. Um, One of the interesting things about an idea like this is that we have a variety of speakers presenting on the same passage of scripture, and so it's to be expected that each presenter will have a slightly different take on what's happening. And so uh, if you are paying careful attention, which I know you will be, um, you'll notice some of the slight uh, different perspective that I'll, that I'll bring, which is not contradictory, but I hope will be supplementary. We live in a world filled with military superpowers of incredibly strong armies. Um, might wonder, what is the greatest superpower in the world? Well, I went to, I Googled it, good researcher that I am, and uh, I found military.com, so take it for what it's worth. Um, The number three spot went to China. They explained their decision, uh, their ranking thus. Uh, The communist superpower has an estimated active personnel of uh, 2,183,000, the largest in the world. China has been building out its navy in recent years, while engaging in territorial disputes across the South China Sea. Today they have 74 submarines, 52 frigates, and 36 destroyers. 33,000 armored vehicles and 35,000 tanks. China is estimated to spend $237 billion on its armed forces uh, in a year. The number two spot went to, any guesses out there? Russia. They explain, uh, Russia, whose military has become involved in Syria and Ukraine, has the most tanks of any country in the world, 12,950, more than double what the United States has. It's estimated 1,013,628 active personnel on land are in charge of commanding 27,038 armored vehicles, 6,083 units of self-propelled artillery, 3,860 rocket projectors. Uh, They have spent a meager 48 billion on their army in a year. Now, the number one spot of superpowers in the world, this honor goes to, drum roll please, It is, yes, the United States of America. All right, go us, I guess. Um, They explain, America has more air units than any other country on Earth, with 2,085 fighters, 967 attack helicopters, and so on uh, and so forth. It has an estimated 1,400,000 active personnel 
and Washington has allocated $750 billion to the U.S. military budget in 2020. That's a lot of money. Russia only had $48 billion. Wow. I don't know what any of that means, but it sounds very impressive to me. <laughs> now, I freely admit I didn't spend a lot of time on this research, but just kind of grabbed it. So take it for what it's worth. They had copy, copyright Fox News at the bottom, so there's a disclaimer for you. Um, but even though I've done minimal research, uh, the above ranking is certainly incorrect and cannot be true one asking the question, what is the world's greatest superpower? And you might have expected a speaker at chapel to say as much. That when we start talking about a question like this, surely there's going to be some sort of supernatural or spiritual angle that I want to bring in. And you'd be right for thinking that. Um, from that angle, what army, what body of soldiers is the top superpower? Dr. McLeod established for us at the beginning of our series that there is a real existence of a supernatural army. The real realm of the demonic host, which is that military term, headed up by the prince of the power of the air, as Ephesians 2.1 calls him. I don't like that prince is really, uh, so it's from the Greek archon. It means like the ruler. It's not that he's the son of the king, but he's the ruler. Uh, this supernatural force was around in Daniel's day, affecting the politics and the moving of the world around them. Um, and it was around and active in the day of the composition of Ephesians. Uh, to read Ephesians 2.1, it says, And you who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein you walked in time past according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works among the sons of disobedience. This is a superpower that far outstrips China, Russia, and yes, even the good U.S. of A. But you know, if you've been paying attention, close attention to Ephesians, it should be clear that this isn't the right answer either. The demonic realm is not the world's mightiest superpower. A person might think, I see where you're going with this. You see, the demons are the bad guys and the angels are the good guys. So I bet what he's going to say is that the angelic host, they are the world's greatest superpower. If you thought that, you'd be wrong. It's not that it's so much a bad idea. It's a good guess. And you're to be applauded for thinking that sort of thing. But if you're paying attention to Ephesians, this is not the argument. If you are a good praxis student following along the logic and rhetoric of Ephesians, you know that there is a group, a host, a corporate reality that ranks higher than the demonic realm and the angelic realm. It is the church as the greatest power in the world.
All throughout Ephesians, Paul has been mounting an argument about this collective reality. Ephesians is about the church. And yet, sadly, it's often superficially interpreted as being mostly about individuals. And every now and then, you get a break to talk about the church. Paul's point throughout the whole letter has been about the corporate dimension. The fact that so many of us are slow to think of the church as the world's mightiest superpower shows, I think, an appallingly low ecclesiology. It shows that Paul's prayer remains unanswered in Ephesians 1. That God would give the church a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your heart being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. This is the arsenal we have at our disposal. His great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's the sort of thing about us, about the church, that I would not be so bold to say or to claim, unless it's just written right there for us in black and white. Paul prays in so many words that they would have a, a high Christology. Christ, as we just read, is far above all, rule and dominion, seated at God's right hand, and we are seated together with him. As far as our ranking goes, we've hit the ceiling. You can't get any higher than being seated at God's right hand. And that's where the church is as it fights its spiritual battle. Unfortunately, the dimension of Paul's thought that we just considered uh, can be forgotten about when we come to this last section on spiritual warfare. Paul continues to talk on the corporate level, talking to the church. This is, after all, a letter written to the church. The church is in a spiritual battle. And though Ephesians very clearly teaches that we have peace with God, we are definitely in a time of war. Ephesians 6.12, again, for what must be the hundredth time from this pulpit this semester. Our struggle... Our fight is not with flesh and blood, but with the rulers, the authorities, the world powers of this darkness, with the spiritual forces of wickedness, which are in those heavenly places. 
in this epic battle, the Ephesians are no peons, nobodies. The church is exalted above the demonic realm and is on the front lines of the battle. Now, sometimes, whether by commentators or by preachers, spiritual warfare is thought of as a defensive matter. And sometimes it is, but this isn't the whole thing. I've got in my mind this image of Scott Farkas. When I say the name Scott Farkas, do you know who I'm talking about? Have you ever seen A Christmas Story? Right, he's the neighborhood bully as Ralphie goes back and to school, and, I, and wherever he's going, there's with his other little friends, every now and then, Scott Farkas, the neighborhood bully, will jump out. He had yellow eyes, I tell you, yellow eyes. And he would jump out and grab one of the people who were passing by and twist his arm until they said, uncle, and then let them go. This is the way some people view uh, spiritual warfare. Maybe not quite so trite, but that's the basic gist. That Christians are just out there minding their own business. When out of nowhere, out comes the devil. And he's going to twist our arm and make life hard for us. And spiritual warfare is learning to look around each corner and be prepared that if battle does pop up, you can get out of there fast. And then go back to basically doing nothing. Victory in this paradigm it's just not sinning. The application is something like um, maybe a believer is just, you know, living life, studying for tests, doing homework, watching TV or whatever, and an ad pops up with a scantily clad woman inviting you to a pornographic site. There's that devil again, the demonic Scott Farkas. What are you going to do? And you've got your armor on so you can escape the temptation. And you click that X, it goes away, and you've won and the devil's lost until we meet again. And he tries to get you to sin. This view is okay and there's, a, there's relevance to it and it can be helpful at points. Um, it's not incorrect, but it's woefully incomplete. We are in an epic battle, and the goal is not survival, mere survival. Victory isn't just escaping the enemy's advances. It's an offensive attack. I like the way Dr. McLeod ended his message. It really tickled my funny bone. And he said, there is a real spiritual enemy, and he hates your guts. I thought it was a great way of ending a message. He hates your guts. He's real. I'd like to add to that. We have a real spiritual enemy, and we hate his guts. We hate him back. We are in a battle. Don't you hate the demonic realm? Don't you long for the day when the head of the serpent is crushed? Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. Does anybody know the rest of the verse? Underneath, pronouns, 
underneath your feet. Underneath your feet. We should be angry about sin and wage war with the devil, but all too often the church is just a sleeping giant, unaware of what it can do, ignoring the battle around us. All too often the church's goal is to have nice, normal, quaint people who come together to sing songs, pay their tithes, take notes from the sermon, and stuff them in their Bible cases. And then go home for the work week where they can live so as to pursue the American dream and pay their taxes. May the Lord save us from such a low ecclesiology. May the Lord save us from the idea of a missionless church. Such churches are fishermen who don't fish. They are light that doesn't shine. They are salt that's lost its saltiness. They are good for nothing but to be cast out and trampled underfoot by men. The missionless church is a grave doctrinal error. So I say all of that because Paul's prayer is still needed, that God would wake up this sleeping giant, that you would realize how great the church is, not because of its own merits or virtue, but because of what Christ has done. Now, this is the way battle imagery is used throughout the New Testament. Uh, to get into the thought world of our passage here, for my verse, this is like a, a, a few-minute message with a really long introduction. Uh, to, to get our mindset right, uh, 2 Corinthians 10 talks about our war, warfare this way. And as I read it, you tell me if you think this is primarily offensive or defensive. Paul writes, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to Christ. If you say defensive, you're just not paying attention. You get that one wrong. There's no misinterpreting it. The Lord Jesus, in his earthly ministry, was not fundamentally defensive, trying to mind his own business until every now and then he bumped into the demonic realm and then just ran away. Or that passage that was read earlier, from Isaiah 59, that's a very important passage because that's one of the primary sources from which Paul uh, gets his information or gets his inspiration on the armor of God. When he writes about the armor of God in Ephesians 6, he's pulling from passages like Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 59. And when we read about where this armor comes from, God is the one who wore this armor. And he's not just sitting in heaven wearing his armor in case the devil decides to attack him one day. No, he's on the offense. So by exhorting the church to put on the armor of God, we are told to engage in the same activity of God, the same spiritual battle, battle that our captain 
and Savior engaged in. All right, so with all that and five minutes left, we're ready now to get into our text. The church is told to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, it's true, of course, that a sword theoretically could be used for self-defense. And, of course, it could also be used for offense. You could just defend yourself from blows, or you could stab people with it. Uh, The word here refers to a smaller sword, about two feet long, two inches wide, in contrast to the broad sword, and it would have been particularly useful in close combat. But the fact that we're engaging here, that this is an offensive idea, does not come from incidental features about the nature of the Greek word for sword. It comes from the big picture of what God is doing in the New Testament, which pulls then from the Old Testament. The Bible has set us up to think in an aggressive posture. So for our battle, we take the sword of the Spirit. It's our main tool for fighting this battle. It is described as being of the Spirit. The pattern then breaks a little bit. So many of the other pieces of armor had like the breastplate of righteousness, and we would uh, understand that as the breastplate, which is righteousness, or the shield of faith, that is to say, the shield, which is faith. That prepositional phrase uh, explains what um, the idea of the uh, armor is. But here, sword of the spirit doesn't mean the sword, which is the spirit. It's something more like the sword, which comes from the spirit. And then he explains, it's the word of God. Throughout Ephesians, Paul has been concerned that the church understands new revelation. Its content, of course, meshes with the Old Testament beautifully, uh, but specifically incorporates the mystery of what God is now doing in this new thing called the church. You can find hints of it, for example, like in Genesis, uh, that the husband and wife are one, but this ultimately speaks of Christ and the church. And so when he says that it is the word of God, it means it is the message of the gospel, of who we are in Christ, the message of salvation. What does it look like then to wield the sword of the spirit in spiritual battle? I like the way the commentator Peter O'Brien puts it. The faithful speaking forth of the gospel in the realm of darkness so that men and women held by Satan might hear this liberating and life-giving word and be freed from his grasp. End quote. Um, Paul has said before in Ephesians, Before they were saved, they were in the realm of Satan. He is the spirit that is now at work among the children of disobedience. And how is it that a person gets transferred out of this realm, the realm of darkness, where Satan is in charge, and gets placed into the body of Christ? It's through the gospel. Whose job is it to share the gospel? 
It's ours, the church. And when we do that, we are liberating people from the realm of darkness. Now, this realm over here, which so desperately needs the gospel, Paul has explained earlier, um, it's the people who are engaged in the worship of idols. That certainly fits well with Acts 19 and the background of Ephesians and what we know about that, the idolaters who were there. But again, that famous passage in Ephesians 2, he says, uh, and you being dead in your trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom we all had our conduct. There's that shift in pronouns. From you, pagan idolaters, worshiping the God of the sun and things like that, to us all, whatever background you were in, no matter how religious, no matter how many Bible verses were memorized, in their unconverted state, they remained in the realm of darkness and needed the gospel. Satan is active today. He's active in universities, in schools, on playgrounds, and yes, even in religious buildings. The battle is so expansive that the church must advance on all fronts. The church, as the church, must preach the gospel. The church, as the church, must wield the sword of the Spirit in, on the front lines. So, the kids who go to the Dream Center, they need the gospel. The people at the Children of Abraham program, they need the gospel. The people at the Multicultural Center, they need the gospel. The people going shopping at the mall, they need the gospel. The people at the University of Dubuque, they need the gospel. The people in your dorms, they need the gospel. Who's going to go there? Whose job is it to go there? It's the churches. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would wake us up to the battle around us. That you would use us. We have the life-giving, liberating message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is stronger than the strong man. Through death, he destroyed him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered them who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And it's our great privilege and our great responsibility as the church to be on the front lines of this battle. Save us, Lord, from a low ecclesiology the tragedy of a missionless church. 
that we go and take thought, take captive every thought that lifts itself up against Christ and spread abroad the news of what he has done, that he has died for our sins, that he victoriously rose from the dead, that he is at your right hand, and that this salvation is by faith to all those who believe. Thank you for calling us into this great work. May we be faithful in taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Chapel Messages podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.